From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From climate to housing to health care, how life in Colorado might change after this year's legislative session. We check in with our statehouse team. Then, pandemic and election year slowdowns rattled people's faith in the post office. Meanwhile, the USPS remains underwater financially. A Coloradan will try to help turn things around. There are certainly concerns I have going into this about service and restoring service and restoring trust. Amber McReynolds joins us. The former Denver elections director will talk about the link between voting access and her new gig as President Biden's pick for a post office governor. Then a diagnosis of Alzheimer's led Rebecca Chop to step down as DU chancellor. That was two years ago. She'll reflect on her journey since. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Fellow Coloradans, your state now has hundreds of new laws, give or take a veto or two. The state legislature wrapped up their lawmaking Tuesday. It was a busy session. So what did they do and what didn't they do? We're going to talk this through with CPR public affairs reporters and the stars of the podcast Purplish, Benta Berkland, and Andrew Kenny. Welcome to you both. Thanks Hello. for having us. I know that the last days of session can be intense. I wonder if there are any final moments that stand out, Andy? Yeah, mine would be right after session ended, the final, final moment. Uh, House Republicans caucused in the basement. That means they, they gathered as a group after the final gavel fell because some of their members wanted to try to change leadership. And it turned into an airing of grievances about, you know, Republicans have been out of power for a while. And some of their members were just upset with how things had gone this session. They thought their leader, uh, House Minority Leader Hugh McKean, should have done more to kind of stop Democrats' agenda really dramatic family fight. There were accusations of you're the leaker or you're leaking the information. To the press. Uh, to the press, okay. yeah. But it ended with a, a 15 to 8 vote, I believe, a, a strong vote to keep the current leadership, but just a little last minute dollop of drama. Among the GOP lawmakers, Benta, what stands out to you about the final days or hours? Yeah, one moment actually came to me on the eve of the last day of session, and that's when two major Democratic priorities failed in the Democratic-controlled House. And one of those measures would have prohibited prohibited law enforcement officers from arresting people for many misdemeanors. And so that bill's main sponsor, Democratic Senator Pete Lee from Colorado Springs, he was actually sitting in the back of the Senate chamber when he got word that the measure had failed in committee late Monday night. I am surprised, shocked, frustrated, deeply disappointed. Who I'm really disappointed for are the people in community This was a harm reduction bill to reduce violence by trying to alter the relationship between the police and the people that they're dedicated to protecting and serving. 
Now, all session, that concept did have pushback from law enforcement who felt it would take away from their on-the-job discretion and make communities less safe. But still, Democrats did make gains in other areas uh, on their criminal justice reform policies. For instance, they passed a different bill to limit the use of the powerful sedative ketamine in law enforcement settings. Let's talk for a moment about the last bill of the session, the big climate change legislation the Democrats wanted. Governor Polis had threatened to veto it. And I guess they reached an 11th hour compromise, Benta? That's right. Negotiations over that policy stretched on for so long, and it ended up being the very last bill across the finish line before lawmakers adjourned. And essentially, Democratic backers accepted a compromise that restricted the bill's scope. So it will cover greenhouse gas emission reductions from the energy sector and electrical utilities, but not from transportation or buildings. And it didn't under uh, it didn't pass. I understand quite smoothly at the end there, Andy. Not exactly. It turned into the last big kind of confrontation between Republicans and Democrats. I was in the House for what we expected would be the final minutes. They were waiting for this bill to come over from the Senate. We heard the Senate cheering because they had finished up their business and passed this bill, but. It turns out the House Republicans were really upset because this climate bill had gone through an enormous amendment at pretty much the last minute, the last week. They hadn't had time to review it. So their members started filibustering, basically reading the text out loud, commenting on it. They kept at it for three hours. They ultimately stopped because they couldn't possibly actually kill the bill. There was still so much time left that Democrats could use. But here's part of uh, House Minority Leader Hugh McKean's final speech on this. Shame on any of us if what we accept is this degree of a process foul. If we accept this is what our institution becomes in the last few minutes of the session. Some final drama there to close out the legislative session at the state capitol. Benta, this is your what dozenth, is that a word, dozenth year covering the legislature. How did this session compare? Yeah, actually, Ryan, it's more than a dozen years. I'm joking, pretty soon I'll be term limited maybe. But, um, (laughs) you know, in some ways, and a lot of people said this inside the Capitol, it felt like three sessions in one because last year was cut short due to the pandemic. So there were all these kind of pent up bills that got derailed and didn't make it through last year. Then we had new bills, of course, and then billions of dollars and federal money and state money lawmakers had to to figure out how to spend. Also, historically, lawmakers do get more weighty bills done in these non-election years. And here's Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg moments before the Senate adjourned. We have been through a lot over these last 18 months or so. I don't even know how many sessions we squeezed in to that 18 months, but it seems like it's been a lifetime. And I'm proud of the work that we did. I'm proud to be in this chamber. This is the third year where Democrats have a wide majority. And I think we really saw them flex their political muscle. They made headway on many of the issues they ran on. Not everything passed in its original form. Some things were watered down. We mentioned, you know, some major bills did die. But overall, I really haven't found Democrats unhappy 
with how much of the session went in terms of policy. And Republicans got some wins, too, with measures that didn't make it. And the parties did come together on some big things like agreeing to a path forward on how to spend close to $4 billion in COVID relief. And they'll be meeting over the interim to propose policy and work that out. So it's going to be pretty collaborative. Let's dive a bit deeper into what got done. Uh, Eddie, you spent much of the session following a bill to create something called the Colorado Option, basically an effort to try to lower health insurance costs. That bill changed a lot through the process. What ended up passing? Let me try to explain this as quickly as possible without going too deep. Um, Basically, originally it would have been public option, the government selling you health insurance. Now the government is going to force private insurance companies to sell a insurance policy that's supposed to have better benefits, lower deductible and lower prices. And they'll be using a new government power to regulate prices at hospitals and doctors to try to accomplish that. If you ask its critics, it's either going to annihilate the healthcare system or lead to socialized medicine or maybe do nothing at all. If you ask Democrats, it could maybe save 15 percent on premiums. How soon would we see those plans emerge, Andy? Oh, those will emerge in the next couple of years. And they'll really kick in by like 2025, full effect. I want to talk about gun policy. After the mass shootings in Boulder and Colorado Springs, that was obviously uh, front of mind. This was a historic session in that regard, something like six bills in total that Democrats passed. Yeah, you know, we saw more policies on uh, on gun legislation than ever before and pass. Um, and so some of the measures, you know, one will mandate reporting of lost and stolen firearms. Uh, people will be required to safely store firearms. The state expanded universal background checks. Um, cities could pass stricter gun laws than the state. And then there will also be a new Office of Gun Violence Prevention huh. to do research and outreach. I'm thinking back then to 2013. I guess that's the session after the Aurora Theater shooting, right? I mean, Democrats mm-hmm. had yes. full control back then uh, as well. They also passed several gun bills, but that led to recalls, a backlash in the next election. I don't know. It seems like this time around, things haven't gotten as heated around the firearms issues. Do you think that's because of the policies themselves or is Colorado just a different place politically than it was in 13? You know, I think it could be a little bit of both. In, in 2013, certainly universal background checks and the high capacity magazine ban were a big, big lift. And I remember, and, and you probably do too, that we had cars and trucks blaring their horns, just circling the Capitol for hours on end. And yeah. We didn't see anything like that this year, even though people strongly opposed a lot of these bills and said it chipped away at constitutional rights. You know, I, I actually do think, though, if Democrats had introduced a statewide assault style weapons ban, which some advocates wanted, I really think it could have reached some of that 2013 level of anger. Let's talk about policies that were a no-go while we're on that subject. Vanta, I know you were following a workplace harassment bill that didn't make it. Yeah, uh, that would have updated Colorado's workplace harassment laws and making it easier for employees to prove a harassment claim at work. And its failure was a huge win for the business community. Uh, They considered the changes nebulous and warned that it will be costly. However, the defeat was a blow to Democratic women lawmakers in particular, so they'd collectively ranked this bill as the number one measure they wanted to pass for the session. Democratic Senator Faith Winter said she didn't expect it to have such a huge hurdle in the House because it passed the Senate even with some bipartisan support. And she does plan to bring a similar bill next year. 
We know that 83% of women in the workplace face harassment. And we know the number one reason women don't come forward is they don't think anything will be done and they're going to face retaliation. This bill was meant to correct that. And we'll keep moving forward and working to protect everyone in the workplace. Okay, so just as one session ends, already focus on the next. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Public affairs reporter is Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. The state legislative session just gaveled to a close. For the U.S. Postal Service, this is a pivotal moment. It's a chance to learn some hard lessons from the pandemic, the possibility of lightening its debt, and an opportunity to build more trust after some noticeable slowdowns in service. A Coloradan will have an important role in all of those things. Amber McReynolds was just confirmed to the USPS Board of Governors. She used to run elections in Denver, then became a national advocate for vote by mail. A natural connection, of course, to the post office. Amber, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start with lessons for the Postal Service from the pandemic. You really think the post office was underutilized in the fight against COVID-19. How so? Well, there's a few things. So first, the United States Postal Service is one of our most admired institutions and and has been in existence since the founding of our country and and really was uh, created to unify Americans, whether that be constituents to business, customers to business, government to to their uh, constituents, uh, but really supposed to be a unifying service provided to all Americans, regardless of geography or large or small communities. Um, And in the pandemic, like every other institution, uh, the Postal Service was significantly impacted. They have frontline workers that deliver rain, snow, sunshine, whatever it might be. And that certainly uh, was applicable during the pandemic. And so their workforce obviously has suffered from the impacts that we all faced during COVID. Um, but I think also, uh, given their power, their magnitude, uh, the impacts they have, the infrastructure they have across the country, they were underutilized. And I think they could have been uh, more utilized uh, to face the pandemic challenges we had early on. In what ways? Well, so given that they deliver to 160 million plus households every single day, uh, they seem like an obvious communication tool that the government could have been utilizing to better get information out about vaccines or the testing programs uh, really across the country. Uh, Certainly the stimulus checks and things like that were being mailed through the Postal Service. Uh, People were relying on getting their medications and all kinds of different services and packages and everything that we saw increase. But you wonder why there wasn't more COVID-19 health information perhaps distributed through the mail, vaccine information. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the the power of the Postal Service is significant. And, you know, they should certainly be a huge factor in planning for emergency situations. And the pandemic was certainly one of them. And I think they could have been utilized certainly a lot more to get information out. With stores closed at certain points or people simply not willing to walk into them because of the virus, mail order became huge. Uh, So think many more packages versus letters. And you contend that the USPS was ill-equipped for that. Can you help us understand? Sure. Well, package volume has increased significantly for the Postal Service, and that started to increase even before the pandemic, but it certainly got even, even larger during the pandemic. And 
because of that, the Postal Service and and really because of a lot of their long-term financial issues, uh, they have not invested in the technology and the infrastructure needed to process packages in that way. Uh, Even some of their older trucks, uh, the average age of a a postal delivery vehicle uh, is is 30 years old. Uh, Even some of the delivery trucks and mechanisms were not prepared to handle the package volume increase. So so they are undertaking some modernizations now, but uh, they were caught a bit flat-footed in a pandemic with a package volume increase the way that it happened. When you were nominated to this position by the Biden administration, I wonder if you started to hear stories of how the slowdown, the election year slowdown, the pandemic slowdown affected people. Yeah, I really started to hear those last year. I think, like everyone did in the in the during the pandemic in the summer of 2020, when we started to hear a lot more about these issues. And and throughout the confirmation process, I've heard consistently from senators and constituents across the country about the concerns on slowdown, whether that be affecting people's medications or bills getting late to the to the to the payment provider, um, whatever that might be. I've heard consistently issues with slowdowns. And so our main focus has to be restoring service and, and, and being transparent and accountable to the American people uh, about how best to improve service across the country. Well, we have to talk about the dire straits that the Postal Service is in financially, which you hinted at. According to the Government Accountability Office, it has lost $87 billion over the past 14 years. It expects to lose $9.7 billion alone in fiscal year 21. You place a lot of that at Congress's feet. Explain that. Right. So so years ago, uh, Congress modified some of the provisions around the financial stability of the Postal Service, meaning they put in place um, a, a, a situation where the Postal Service has to pre-fund retiree benefits over a very long period of time, more so than any other government entity, any other business would ever do. Uh, so it's really put the Postal Service in a, in a pretty bad financial position. That alone would uh, move the Postal Service forward. And there's already by partisan legislation in front of Congress now to address that very issue. Uh, the other thing that the Postal Service, and this, and both of these things are in the Postmaster General's 10-year plan that he recently uh, put out. And uh, another issue is the um, Medicare integration. So uh, the Postal Service has over 600,000 employees. Uh, they are the, the largest uh, contributor to Medicare of any, of any uh, government entity or employer in the country, and yet they're not not their their uh, retirees are not integrated with Medicare, and so that's also costing and and creating significant financial burden on the postal service. So those two things are very big in terms of addressing some of the financial issues, and then certainly we have to restore service and figure out other opportunities for revenue so that the postal service can grow and and stay in a financially viable position. The FBI is investigating the current postmaster Louis DeJoy for campaign finance violations. Does he have your support? So I haven't even been at a, at a board meeting yet. Uh, so I have not had access to the same information that the current board of governors has had. And so, you know, as I've come into this position, I've been very clear that I don't have any judgment about the postmaster general, partly because I just haven't had the access to the information that the other board of governors, uh, the other members of the board of governors have had. Um, so certainly that's our job is to uh, is to analyze and assess the postmaster general and the post office's uh, 
performance overall. So that's certainly going to be a big part of what we do. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly going to be paying very close attention to the performance metrics and, and the evaluations that, that the current board has done and then what we will do going into the future. And no doubt what the FBI is investigating. Absolutely. Okay. I want to talk to you about the overlap between elections and the post office. Again, your background is in elections. I think you remain CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute. Uh, To make this concrete, I I want to have you talk about change of address forms and their connection to voting. Colorado stands out in this regard. Absolutely. So with the Postal Service, and um, I'm sure many of your listeners have have either filled out the change of address form online or have filled it out in person. And so there's a change of address process through the Postal Service. When you complete that, you can put down a residential change or a temporary change or a post office box change. When you do the residential address change in Colorado, Colorado election officials actually get that data monthly from the National Change of Address database, and they automatically update your record if you've moved within the state, in either within county or going to another county. And then if you've moved out of state, you get a letter at your new address out of state uh, encouraging you to register to vote in your new state and encouraging you to withdraw your Colorado registration if you've moved. Um, but that in, within state moves happen automatically. And we are a unique Uh, state in that regard. Uh, And so I think there's huge opportunity for the rest of the country to take Colorado's lead on that and utilize that information from the Postal Service so that addresses are more accurate within the voter registration system. Which presumably could increase confidence in the election system if people can trust that uh, you know, the proper voter is getting the proper form. But you're, that kind of coordination is happening in no other state. Yeah, there's no other automatic updating like what we do in Colorado. And I think the other thing is, like, I look at this as just a, an efficiency. So instead of election officials having to process another piece of paper or even voters have to fill out another form or another online online form, uh, we have made it more efficient so that you don't have as much bureaucracy here in Colorado. And that is a connection between elections in the post office that you think could be improved. Should the post office make money? So under the un, under the laws uh, on the books with regards to the Postal Service, uh, they, they, they don't take taxpayer money. So they need to be financially stable, meaning covering their costs. Uh, I don't think that means that they have to be in the profit business like mm-hmm. private business necessarily, but we need to figure out a way to make sure they are financially stable so that they can cover their operating expenses per the laws on the books that, that require that. You think there's an important difference between the Postal Service and private services like FedEx and UPS, and that's the ability to lobby. Say just a few words about that before we go. Well, sure. So the Postal Service being a, being an independent government entity, essentially, and, and also per having a universal service obligation under the law means that uh, you as a citizen can get access to that information and, and the uh, services the Postal Service provides, regardless of where you live. Private companies... They can serve where they want to serve, which is why they often do not deliver out to rural parts of the country, whereas the Postal Service does have that universal obligation. Uh, Private entities also can lobby Congress on all of these issues. The Postal Service obviously is not in a lobbying uh, environment. They cannot do that. They can respond to Congress on on various issues that come up, but they're not in the same space that a private entity or uh, association of, of companies would be. In just a few words, is there someone you'd like to see on a stamp? 
There is, actually. I have a few ideas on this. I think local election officials uh, would be excellent considerations, and maybe that's specific to states. And then Simone Biles, uh, she just won, and she is truly one of the best uh, and all-time greatest. And I think she and other incredible athletes like that would be a great addition. Amber McReynolds of Denver recently confirmed to the U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors. Back in the next half hour, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. On the new episode of Systemic, meet a law enforcement leader who tries to change things from the top down and sometimes faces resistance from her own officers. So we had a meeting and I said, I know how officers behave. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't like the undertone, I don't like the overtone, and I will not stand for it. And people... Find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you listen. Alzheimer's disease forced Rebecca Chop to step down as chancellor at the University of Denver. That was in 2019. Previously, she'd been president of Colgate University and Swarthmore College. Dementia is difficult for anyone, but there are unique struggles for educators like CHOP. Since leaving DU two years ago, she has opened up about her journey. So has her husband. She's going to lose herself. All that is important to her, everything, she'll lose. I hurt for her. It's a huge loss for her. Huge loss. a huge loss for her the world, as far as I'm concerned. That's from an Alzheimer's Association video. So Choppy is also a leading scholar in religion and American culture, was dean at Yale's Divinity School, and Rebecca Chop is here to share her journey. Thank you for being with us. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Announcing your departure from DU, you said it was because of a, quote, complex neurological Disorder. Why did you call it that at the time? Well, it's a great question. You know, I had just gotten the diagnosis. Um, I had been on a journey with lots of doctors for several several months, and had just gotten the diagnosis and realized I was going to have to step down immediately. And my mind wasn't quite around it. I, I didn't know if I wanted to be identified as an Alzheimer's victim. Um, And several of my doctors told me that, indeed, there were so many stereotypes of the fact that you just go to complete, you know, last stage immediately in people's minds. So they said, take your time. And I did tell the board of trustees that it was Alzheimer's, but I wasn't quite ready to go public. I also wanted time to process it with my family and my friends. I want to talk a bit about the stereotypes, the stigma. Mm -hmm. So I think what I heard you say there is the moment someone hears that there's an Alzheimer's diagnosis, they jump to the end. There's there's no focus and no realization that it is a path. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes, and and that it's a unique path for every person. So um, when I told uh, some people, of course, many, many people cried with me and they were full of sympathy and empathy and those kinds of things. That was wonderful. But I had people do things like talk louder to me, um, ask me to resign from a board, um, or talk just to my husband as if I had lost all comprehension. So I think there are a lot of stereotypes out there 
about the disease. Would you speak up when people would do that? Um, I just kept talking to them, and, and I usually use humor. So I usually say, no, my mind may dissolve. My hearing's quite good. <laughs> so... <laughs> My mind may dissolve. My yes. hearing's quite good. It's maybe a little gallows humor. Yes, a little gallows humor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When did you first get a hint that something wasn't uh, as it used to be with your memory? Well, that's that's the very odd thing. And this is really a story about the importance of doctors recognizing things that you may not. So I really didn't have particular signs. Looking back, now I see things. Mm. But at that point, I didn't. I went in for my annual physical. My doctor asked me how I was. I said, well, I'm great. I'm sleeping. I'd never slept very much in my life. So all of a sudden, I was sleeping eight, nine hours a night after sleeping four or five a night. And I said it was just wonderful. And I also told her it was so interesting I'd gotten lost on the way to her office. Now, I had never gotten lost before that and never gotten lost since that. So maybe my body was just saying, warning sign, warning sign. And she said, well, she's a great primary physician. She said, let's give you a little cognition test. Her nurse came in, gave me a cognition test, um, took about 10 minutes, and she said, you know, I don't like when I'm seeing her. And she said, it's really high and it's really low, and I'm going to refer you to more testing. And that pattern kept going on. I would take tests two hours, eight hours, and then I had various brain scans, and then it was determined I had Alzheimer's. But I didn't, um, that's part of why early detection is so wonderful. It gave me the chance to do behavioral intervention, diet, exercise, reading, art, music. And it required a doctor who knew the subtle, the quite subtle signs of this. Correct. It did. And that's so important. So many doctors either don't give the test. I personally think everybody should get a baseline, maybe at the age of 62 or 65. Hmm. I mean, we get colonoscopies. They're required. Why can't we have these cognition tests? They're a lot cheaper. And they're much easier to go through. I know of one test for Alzheimer's. It's where someone is asked to draw a clock with the time correctly showing. I think it's like 10 minutes past 11. What were the sorts of tests that yes. you did? Yes, that that's the kind of thing. So, so the little 10-minute diagnosis test includes that. It includes maybe drawing through a maze. It, it, they read you a story, and you have to answer some questions, um, numbers, forward and backwards. Can you remember five numbers forward and backwards, seven numbers, and then words? And that that was a little hard for me. So they give you five words, and you have to remember them. And maybe seven minutes later, they ask you what the words were. Hmm. So then the, the other tests go from there. You can have a two-hour one with more variations. This must feel like loss to you. Um, yeah. I mean, it. I had this fabulous uh, uh, mission-based career. I had a purpose in life, and I loved it. I mean, I really, truly loved it. Even the endless meetings, I loved. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that was a lot of loss, and and not being able to. You know, right now, what I find hard is. Um, I always had tremendous energies. I love people. I love social engagement. Give me a big party. Give me a 
event to speak at, whatever. And I have to really monitor those now because I get tired. So there's loss. But, you know, right now, um, there's also new discovery. Art, music, time to do things, time to spend with my husband. I think that's the second time you've mentioned the art. You've taken up painting. Yes. And you see that as uh, healing, as therapy. Tell me why. Well, anything that um, establishes kind of uh, new neuropathways, plasticities, especially me, I was so, I'm going to use these common terms, you know, kind of left brain, you know, (laughs) alpha, um, to do the kind of meditative right brain of art, the visualization has been really powerful. And it, the kind of art I do is portrait painting. It's realistic portrait painting. So it it requires a lot of thinking and studying and taking lessons. And you were not painting before this. Never, so, never. So you've learned something when everything. you say forming new neural pathways. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 Anything else you're learning? Well, I'm. Uh, I joined a choir. I moved into a senior community. My husband and I decided that we needed to uh, do that. And it would be easier for both of us. So we found a great one uh, called The Ridge out in the foothills. And they have a choir. So um, this Friday, I'm taking my first voice lesson. So, Did you decide to make that move in part because of the kind of continuum of care you can expect at a facility like that? Correct. Given what your journey is likely to be? Correct. Mm -hmm. So right now, we're in independent living. They have assisted living. They have memory care. You are on medication to manage the symptoms, I understand. Uh, You've no doubt heard of this controversial drug, Aduhelm, which Mm -hmm. the FDA just approved. Critics say the potential side effects may outweigh what are only marginal benefits. But is this a drug you'd like to take? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is yay for research. Yay for these drugs. Yay for supporting research. Yay for the FDA being willing to really take this seriously. We need more drugs. Right now, I think the cure is close. Um, I think the research is very, very, uh, you know, difficult on this drug. The side effects of brain swelling, uh, that's pretty serious. So right now, I'm not, I don't have my doctor on speed dial on this drug, but I am talking to researchers. I'm going to follow the research, and I'll look at it, but um, I'll you're, wait and see. It sounds like to me you're applying all of your talents as an academic <laughs> to now the world of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's research. I heard you say there that you think a cure is close. What gives you that sense? Well, I think uh, there's more and more awareness, thanks to the Alzheimer's Association and other groups, uh, the Noble Institute at DU as a local referral. There is more and more awareness. More and most people I talk to have a family member or a close friend. So, like cancer, 25 years ago, there's more interest in supporting research, and more and more researchers are doing this. And though no drug has been found to cure it, um, there are some incredible breakthroughs. And all the researchers I talk uh, to from the biological and the chemical um, sides are very, very optimistic. Uh, The Alzheimer's Association on their front page says someone today living with Alzheimer's will be the first cured from Alzheimer's. 
Do you hope that includes you? I would like that to be. <laughs> so I do all I can in terms of preventive health so that I could be one of the first ones cured. What are some of the signs of Alzheimer's you notice these days? Has it changed much? Yeah, it's. Um, I'm very fortunate that my cognitive tests have remained stable for two years. Um, but I have noted more memory lapses, uh, short-term memory especially. Um, Give me an example of when that happens. Okay, the other day somebody called me to talk about a uh, he was a fitness trainer, somebody I'm interested in in doing some work with. And uh, my husband was there, heard the call. The next day I'd completely forgotten it. Uh, very, very common for me to book appointments uh, over one another. So we keep now an old-fashioned paper calendar, and I have to remember to go to it all the time. Um, and, and to write immediately down things you commit to. Immediately. Uh-huh. I mean... Yeah, run to that paper calendar. Um, and the other uh, one, I uh, well, I I don't. I've never been. I've been stronger verbally than numerically my, all my life. Although I got A's in math every, every time, I don't. Um, I don't like math now. I mean, numerical stuff. I just I don't I don't like it. So I imagine that's happening too because I never liked it, but I did it. And um, then social issues. Um, I can't be in large crowds. Um, um, ambient background noise uh, bothers me. Um, I can't handle a lot of, um, I, I like to say um, that I have a prescription for my doctor to avoid toxic people. Okay. So I really can't uh, deal with uh a lot of toxic, mean kind of stuff. Now, we, none of us like it, but we always have blinders or screens or kind of armor. And I think what happens when you have, um, for many of us, when we have this disease, is that our emotional shields start to go down. And so it is more upsetting. And you have to avoid being upset because that adds stress, and stress is the worst thing you can do for your brain. You are a scholar of religion and American culture. I mentioned you were dean at Yale's Divinity School. Do you look at this experience through a faith or a religious lens? Absolutely. And yes. what what does that tell you? Well, I don't... Um, it, you know, I think for me, it's part of one's journeys. And I'm a, I'm a Christian, Um by practice, and and so we have scriptures that are full of lamentation and sadness, advice about being peaceful. Um, I was just reading in the Gospel of John how um, all the struggles uh, in life are also ways to give witness, so to speak. Um, I'm not a, I'm not an evangelical, and I don't use that kind of evangelical language. But I do use the language of giving witness to love, to caring, uh, finding joy in in nature and beauty and things like that. So I, I find it actually an incredibly spiritual time, maybe because it's given me the time to slow down. Do you come to an answer on whether the diagnosis is random or part of your path? I don't know that I believe in that kind of question. Huh. <laughs> I don't know that there is a determined path, um, that, that there's a grand design. You know, there was a thing in modernity, 
And it was really until modernity that people believed that God was this giant architect that designed everybody's path and, and is in charge. And I think, I think when the Bible talks about God holding us in God's hands and those kinds of things, a different meaning is, is there. It's spiritual. So Not so literal. Not so literal. Mm-hmm. No, that's really a mo- modern invention. This is a really delicate question and one that may very well be intertwined with your faith. But is, is there a point of decline where you'd rather not live? Have you had those thoughts or even those discussions? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, it's a, it's a point when I can no longer engage uh, with others, when I don't know my husband or my son or my close friends, when I take no enjoyment and instead I take the Earth's resources <laughs> I use our resources. I, I've often said to my husband, um, after providing for him and, and others, I would rather money go to a scholarship at one of the schools I've been to or I went to um, than to support me on life support. That makes no sense to me. Hmm. Are those difficult discussions to have? Um not really. Um, I don't have them randomly with just anybody who walks down the street, although I'm thinking about more and more that I should, and here I am. Um, I think my husband uh, uh, and I have known that we have both felt this way. I remember the first discussion we had with a good friend of ours who was a faculty member at Yale about this on my 50th birthday, and I didn't know my diagnosis, but this just this notion. Oh, well. My son, I've had many discussions with him about this and some friends. I'm really grateful for your candor about it. Thank you. Because it's a deeply private issue. As baby boomers age in Colorado, uh, we just know that diagnoses of Alzheimer's and dementia will increase. And, And so do you have specific advice? I guess maybe we should start with healthcare professionals in terms of the care they give. Yes. Uh, it's really a good question, really an important question. One, I think healthcare professionals uh, do need to be into early detection. I really do think there is no reason, given all the data, that people at 65 approximately should not be given a routine test. I don't think they need to wait until symptoms show. Second, I think um, healthcare providers need to tell the truth. If they suspect it, if they have the diagnosis, they need to share it. I recently heard of a, of a woman who found out she was on one of these drugs by hearing that a drug she was prescribed is a drug they give for Alzheimer's and only Alzheimer's. Oh, the healthcare professional never told her the right. circumstances around the prescription. Correct. My goodness. Correct. That, that doesn't seem ethical. No, <laughs> but doc, many doctors do think that there's nothing you can do. They're, they're, they're still a little uninformed, some of our doctors, but they're going to get informed. We're working on that. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Rebecca Chop of Lakewood stepped down as chancellor of the University of Denver in 2019. That was after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Previously, she served as president of Swarthmore College and Colgate University. Chop now volunteers with the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado to help people better understand dementia.
When Congress sent billions of dollars to state and local governments, most lawmakers thought it would be used on the front lines of the public health crisis or to help struggling families. But states are giving away some of that money as an incentive for people to get the vaccine or go back to work. Health officials aren't sure whether cash actually drives vaccinations. So is a multi-million dollar bet the right way to spend taxpayer money? CPR's Caitlin Kim takes a look. Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter admits there were a lot of ways he imagined state and local governments would use coronavirus relief funds. Prize money to encourage people to get vaccinated was not on his list. We want to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible. And if this lottery helps in that regard, then okay, great. Colorado is following the lead of Ohio, offering a million dollars each to five vaccinated individuals and scholarships for kids as an incentive for people to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Other states are jumping on board the incentive train. Cash, bonds, state park passes, or hunting and fishing licenses. In West Virginia, a hunting rifle is one possible prize for a vaccinated person. And believe it or not, this makes sense to Scott Lincecum, senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank. Carrots are far better than sticks. Lincecum says a government mandate to get vaccinated is not going to work. Look at what happened with wearing masks. To the extent that states have this money allocated, to the extent they are going to spend this money anyway on, on public health promotion, um, it makes good sense for them to try to figure out what will actually get people to get off the fence. Lauren Boebert, the Republican congresswoman representing the Western Slope, took to Twitter to criticize the idea. She wrote she's not a fan of Democratic Governor Jared Polis using taxpayer dollars to fund, quote, his COVID lottery. She says government doesn't need to be in the business of bribing people to get vaccinated. But vaccination rates, which have been flattening in the state, may indicate otherwise. Overall, 45 percent of the state's population is fully vaccinated. Mike Farkason, policy analyst for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, says in this case, the ends may justify the means. You know, it seems, I think, irresponsible to run lotteries. But in if you think about their purpose and the purpose is to make sure that people get vaccinated, I think it probably is a good use of the funds. He and others also point out that the economic impact of having a mostly vaccinated population is substantial. Treasury Department rules allow coronavirus relief funds to be used for marketing the vaccine. Polis says these lotteries complement a traditional marketing campaign and get the message out. And really every winner is an ambassador for the vaccination program uh, to demystify it, to highlight it. Democratic Representative Jason Crow says the longer the pandemic goes on, the more expensive it becomes. And the criticism some have to these out-of-the-box approaches doesn't make sense to him. Uh, the bottom line is those who are critical do not have solutions, and they're not uh, trying to, to uh, work productively to end this. So uh, I'm a firm believer in doing what we have to do to make sure we're addressing the crisis. But if there is some agreement that getting shots in arms is a good thing, there remains disagreement about other incentives, like back-to-work bonuses. Colorado is also one of a number of states offering people money to go back to work. The Cato Institute's Scott Lincecum says for him it reaffirms that the amount of state and local funds in the American Rescue Plan didn't necessarily reflect the reality on the ground. Uh, they simply went ahead with um, spending as if we were still in crisis mode with a ton of uncertainty out there. And sure, there was some uncertainty, but not nearly as much. 
Crow pushes back on this notion. He says there are a lot of reasons people aren't back to work. Low wages, health fears, and kids still at home. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett says it's about offering states and local governments flexibility. I think we all believe that a one-size-fits-all approach um, didn't make sense, and states would have to make their, their decisions, and I think the governor's done a good job. At least one Colorado county has taken a page from the state's incentive plan. Mesa County is running its own countywide COVID vaccine lottery with a grand prize of $90,000 in the hopes that it will help lift the county's partially vaccinated rate of 42 percent closer to the goal of 70 percent. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters, brought to you each day by... Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters, from CPR News and from KRCC. Thank you.